Um, we are in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, if you want to open your Bibles there. We'll begin right here in verse 1 where we left off. Although I feel like it's important just to remind us, look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 28, the verse just that ends the previous chapter. Isaiah 43, 28. God, and he's talking to or about his people and all the punishment he's going to give to them because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And that's wrapped up with this statement here in 43.28. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and given Jacob to the curse and Israel to the reproaches. Short of it is, you people have disrespected the temple. You don't care about the temple or the worship of the temple anymore. You'll still show up every now and then. You'll toss a lamb on the altar and you'll think that satisfies God. But that does not satisfy God because your heart is not in it. Besides, you go worship pagan idols all every other day of the week. Um, so you have profaned the sanctuary, so I will profane it. You have made a mockery of it, so I will send Babylonians in to burn it down. You've made a mockery of the so-called holy land, so I will make it a profane uh, place and give Jacob to the curse. So it ends on a very sour note. Then you pick up in 44 verse 1, and what's the first word in your translations? But. Yours says but. Anybody have a different word? Yes. Or yet. Same same game contraction. Or same uh, interjection. This idea of um, you're, you're heading this one direction, but. Or yet. On the other hand. It could be worse. This could be the end. 43 could be the last thing that Isaiah writes. But it's not. So I, Judah is going to be given to a curse. You're going to be destroyed. Your land destroyed. Verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and hear Israel, whom I have chosen. Listen to the other side of the coin. Because I chose you a long time ago, your ancestors a long time ago. Because I made you my special servant. He made the whole earth. He made every person by proxy that ever has been or ever will be. And yet of all of them and of everyone, he chose to carve out for himself a nation that would wear his name, a nation that would honor him, a nation that would be governed by his written law. He chose to carve out for himself his own special people through which he would save everybody else, including them, of course. So he has made them his naturally. He has a vested interest in them. Naturally, he doesn't want to see them be destroyed. He's going to be doing some destroying. He's going to be doing some spanking. But like every good parent, it hurts him more than it hurts them. He doesn't want to have to do this, but he knows he must do this. So he, he tempers his predictions of destruction with these words of promise. And it's going to be okayness. Yet now hear Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord that made you and formed you from the womb. Very beautiful poetry there. Which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. And you, my Bible says, Jeshurun. Does everybody's Bible say something like that? Maybe Jeshurun or Jeshurun. It's only found here and it's found in Deuteronomy 32 and I think 33 as well. It's a very rare, rarely used expression, but it just, it's used to describe God's um, people. God, in other words, is digging deep into his repository of pet names for his people. You go back and you just think, I'm not going to give you the list, but there's a lot of different ways that God describes his nation. He's digging deep into that well, and he's pulling out one that he barely ever uses. Why? Because he wants to triple down on the idea to remind his people that they belong to him. That they were 
formed from the womb, that he birthed them, held them as newborn babies, gave them their name. He is in every way a spiritual being can be their father. And so they have gone off the reservation. Off the reservation, they have gone off the deep end. They've completely gone away into idolatry and evil. But God says, yet yeah, you are still mine, and I'm going to make this right. I'm going to take care of you. You are my servants. You are my people whom I have chosen. Verse 3. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon dry ground. Floods not in the destructive type, but in the sense of overwhelming water. For a parched land. I will pour my spirit upon your seed and pour my blessings upon your offering. This is a promise. If you think about dry land, you think about parched deserts, you think about um, uh, uh, droughts that destroy floods and cro- uh, not floods, destroy crops and things. And then finally, after months and months of desperation, ra- rain falls. What words, what thoughts come to your mind? You think of relief, you think of reinvigoration, you think of blessing. This is what God is promising here. You have been parched and dried and arid and cracked and dying because you have sapped yourself from the tender mercies of God. You've dried up yourself. You've dried up the well of God's mercies. You've removed yourself from His blessings. You've gotten away from His showers, but He's going to bring them back. He's going to flood your land again in a positive way. All your dry ground. He's going to pour water upon everyone who is thirsty. That's obviously metaphorical. You get more of a... It's it's parallelism. So the second half of the verse rephrases the first, but it puts it more in a spiritual text. I will pour my spirit upon your seed and my blessings upon your offspring. It's the same thing said in the first half. It's just there he uses natural illustrations, water and floods and so forth. And the other half is spiritual focused. It's the same idea. I'm going to give you great blessings raining down upon you. Verse 4, and they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by, the King James says, watercourses, rivers. It just means rivers. With God's help, this nation is not just going to survive. This nation is not just going to get by. This nation is going to thrive. This nation is going to boom and blossom again. As God, through his prophets, predict the coming era of the Messiah, they write about it as if it's this physical nation that's going to rise to a new level of prosperity, a new kind of prominence. They're looking forward into the future, and what the prophets are seeing, what the prophets are writing, and the way they phrase it is, when the Christ to come arrives, he's going to usher in this era of prosperity like David never could. He's going to bring this greatness and this large S to the kingdom that Solomon never could. He's going to bring unity and unification that was lost after Solomon left the throne. He's going to bring everybody together. It's going to be sunshine and rays of light beaming out. And everybody's going to just be envious of Judah. And all the people who read this got the wrong impression of what was coming. They had this idea that when the Messiah comes... I mean, he's going to be out there laying golden bricks all over the place to build our houses with. He's going to be giving us these fountains of water of the physical kind, H2 and O, that will just constantly be springing so we'll never be thirsty. Bread will rain from the sky. There'll be a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. They had all these ideas, and that wasn't at all what God promised. That's just how God worded it. That's the poetic way that God phrased it. He was, he was using terminology they could understand about what prosperity looks like to promise something greater than a, a full belly and a, a warm house. He's promising you spiritual relief, which will be at the end of this chapter. You'll see that promise be more specifically made. The Jews always ignored that part of it. They focused on, oh, I can't wait for the Messiah to get here because he's going to fill our bellies all the time. 
And it's not a coincidence that not that early into Jesus' ministry, when he did fill their bellies, he had droves of people follow him until he stopped filling their bellies physically. And he started telling them, well, if you want to get fed, you got to eat my body and drink my blood. Speaking poetically as Isaiah does here, except speaking directly to them. And the people heard that and they balked. And they said, aren't we going to get hot pockets? Are there no more hot pockets? And then they left him in droves. In fact, in the, in the account of John 6, that, that tragic account of John 6, when they all leave him, he's left with just his 12. <laughs> he's just left with his core, his original group. And he had started that chapter with thousands. He fed 5,000 in the text that just preceded that. And he's left with just nothing. Basically nothing. In terms of numbers, if you care about numbers, left with nothing. Why? Because he stopped filling their bellies. Because that's what the Jews thought the Messiah would do. When he stopped providing that misconception, they stopped believing him as the Messiah they wanted. Because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. He's the Messiah that got them. So, this is what Isaiah is talking about. Prosperity, rivers flowing, water streams, all this beautiful imagery. But it's of a spiritual kind. I'm not trying to say, oh, it sounds good, but it's not good. That's not my point. My point is, if you're worldly minded, you'll be expecting something. And God's giving you something greater. But you only recognize it's greater if you tune your heart and your desires to spiritual things. Verse 5. And one in this, in this whole messianic era, one shall say, I am the Lord's. Another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another, the King James words it like this, shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. You're given a description of three kinds of people, all of whom are going to be servants of the Messiah. They're all going to be people who belong to God. One is going to be a people. Now, here's how the King James, I'm pretty sure yours words are basically the same way. It starts with saying, I'm the Lord's. Right? That's how yours starts, basically. I am the Lord's. Yeah. And the next one, I belong to Jacob, or I wear the name of Jacob. Is that what yours has? All right. So you might mis misread this and think, oh, so this, this first one belongs to the Lord. But the second one doesn't. He just belongs to Jacob. But no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there are these two kinds of people over here. Oh, on the one hand is this guy. He belongs to the Lord, but he wears the name of Jacob too. This is an Israelite who belongs to the Lord. Over here is this guy who doesn't belong to Jacob. He's not an Israelite. He's not at the stock of Abraham by birth and genealogy. But he still gets to say, I am the Lord's. See, in the era of the Messiah, it doesn't matter what your birthright is. It doesn't matter that you used your great, 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 great times, whatever, was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These people of Judah could make that claim and made it with pride. But in the era of the Messiah, it's not going to matter. There'll be people who belong to Jacob, and they'll be the Lord's. There'll be people that won't belong to Jacob, but they'll be the Lord's. And there'll be proselytes who will also belong to the Lord. Those who, before they find the Lord, find the Messiah, they will go from being not belonging to Jacob to, by subscription, belonging to Jacob. They'll sign up for it, not by birthright, but by choice. That's that third group at the end of the verse. But in the end of the day, they will all get to belong to the Lord. Now, this is not saying that everybody is going to become a Christian. This is not promising some blanket salvation, whether you want it or not. This is saying of those who belong to Christ, it will be comprised of people of all walks of life. It will not just be exclusive to those of Jacob's stock. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me, standing next to me, on my level, is nothing. There is no God. The God who is everywhere, who encompasses everything, by definition, can't share the stage. Because the stage is entirely consumed by Him. 
There's no room for any other God. And he'll make that exact point here in just a minute. He'll call up to the stage anyone on his level and there will be no answer because there is no other but God. So again, what does he say? Beside me, there is no God. Beginning of the verse. I am your God, your King, your Redeemer. I am the first. I have always been. I am the last. After you're all gone, I still will be. There just is and always shall be God. Verse 7. And who, I say, shall, shall I call and shall declare it and set in order for me? Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. This is where God says, I am and there is no other unless I'm wrong. Is there some other? Now is the opportunity for some other God to take the stage and make a prediction. Let the people know what's coming in the future. This, this chapter is going to end with a whopper of a prediction. By name, a person is going to be predicted 150 years before you and takes his first breath of air. So God says, who can do that? Somebody, anybody. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Nobody can. What does he say again in verse 7? Who, as I, can call and declare it and set in order? Who can make predictions? Who can plan? Who can manipulate the chessboard? Who can work providentially and directly and accomplish his will that he set forth decades, centuries, millennia ahead of time? Who can be so strategic, so refined, and so precise, and so perfect in his execution? There is none other but the Lord. Verse 8. So to Judah, fear you not, neither be afraid. Now remember, if I'm reading this cover to cover, it's seven verses ago where God said, I'm about to blow you all up. That was the end of chapter 43. So I'm a little... Little, little, my heart's a little, little skipping a beat still. So God has to remind me, hey, calm down. You're my child. I gave you your name. I was there from the womb. I formed you in the womb. I birthed you. I cradled you. I protected you. You're mine. I'll protect you. Don't be afraid. Verse 8. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Who can prove? Who can stand on a lower stage and declare the greatness of God? Who better than this people to say what God can do? Lots of people can call credit to God, but Israel can say, we saw the sea split. Israel can say, we saw the water turn to blood. We saw frogs. We saw boils. We saw death pass over the land, or pass through the land and pass over my house just because I covered my house in lamb's blood. For that one and only reason, death, a plague of death that spread over everywhere just didn't come to me. That's not a coincidence. That's the work of God. Who better than Israel to be his proclaimers? You are my witnesses, he says. Is there a God beside me? Now put those two sentences together. You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? He's asking you to answer the question. Now what's the answer? You answer. Then tell me why these people keep worshiping every other God they can find. You see, even in the midst of promising protection, he's got to shame him a little bit. Because here he is saying, I stand alone on this stage, and you are my witnesses to prove it. Now you answer the question, is there any other God? And they all are forced to say, no, there's no other God but God. Then the question that goes unasked, he never specifically asks it, but he asks everything else. He says everything else around it. He leads them to ask the question to themselves, what are we doing worshiping all these other gods? In, I'm glad you're here. You're just in time. In the movie Batman Returns, 
The penguin hatches a plot to steal the mayorship of Gotham City. Cons the whole city into believing he's some altruistic, slightly ugly-looking freak, but a nice guy who saved the mayor's son, then ran against the mayor in a recall election, and was on his way to win the election. Had him all conned, had him all, all, all played like a fiddle. In fact, that's what he said in private. He played him all like a fiddle. And then Batman got a hold of the recording of him saying that, and played it on a little CD drive and hacked into the... the Microphone Steve's giving a political speech. It's a great Christmas movie. And he played all the big loudspeakers that the whole city was a bunch of idiots and he played like a fiddle. And, of course, the whole city turns against him. They all showed up with tomatoes and, and, and fruits and vegetables to the speech, like you're supposed to do for a political speech. And they all start hurling fruits and vegetables at him and he loses his mayoral campaign as the whole thing is all shot. And all the people are left to stand there as they're holding their tomatoes, thinking to themselves... How stupid were we? We almost elected the giant penguin-looking man as our mayor. How foolish were we? That's how stupid you feel. God is putting the people through the same thing. He's making them realize how stupid have we been to have been conned into believing a chunk of wood that I cut down, covered in gold that I paid for, put on a mantle that I set there, could save me instead of the God who made the tree, made the gold, and made the mantle. How stupid have I been? That's what these next several verses are supposed to lead you to say. If you've ever worshipped another God but God, you're supposed to read these verses and ask yourself, how stupid have I been? Is there any other God? No. So there's really no choice but to serve God. I mean, you have a choice, but you can choose anything, but it's a stupid choice. There's only one sound of choice, and that's to worship Jehovah. Verse 9, let's talk about these false gods and how they are made. He never once says that you people worship. Not, not, not bluntly. He just dances around it. We all know it. It's the elephant in the room. He just leaves it there hanging. Verse 9, they that make a graven image, all of them worthless. Vanity, the King James says. And their delectable things that they use to make these idols shall not profit them. And they are their own witnesses. Tie that in with what we heard before. You're my witnesses. Who are the witnesses of the idol maker? Or the, uh, the idols? The idol maker. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. If those false gods that are made could talk, they would say, I'm worthless to you. If they could hear, they would hear cries they could not answer. If they could move, they could not help because they have no strength. They are weak. They're worthless. They're just chunks of wood or metal or gold or brass or bronze. So, they are all worthless, but think about the contrast here. Just a minute ago, we had this expression from God. You are my witnesses. God's witnesses are his creation. Who is the witness to the power of an idol? The creator of the idol. Because the idol can't do anything. It needs the idol maker to stand in his defense. God doesn't need me to stand in his defense. But I get to be his witness and say what he has done. The idol maker can't, the idol can't do that. The idol maker has to say, look what I have done. See the difference? Verse 10. Who has formed a god or molten, uh, melted down in to make a graven image that is profitable for nothing? What kind of people are we talking about here? Behold, verse 11. All his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yea, they, uh, yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. They'll all come together with all their great prize. And they'll say, look at what we've built. Look what we've made. Look what we've carved. Look at this beautiful idol. And it's to no one's benefit. It's to no one's glory. It can only bring you shame. Your great triumph is your fault. Your undoing. Verse 12. 
the smith with the tongs that works in the, both works in the coals and fashions it. The, the metal forms it, molds it with hammers and works it with the strength of his arms. Imagine the big burly muscles of a man who just swings that heavy hammer all the time to shape and to chisel and break down and to mold the, the shape of the gold into a smooth polished material. But he still, after he works all day long, if you've ever worked all day long, I've heard, what happens if you work all day long, you end up being what? I heard a mumble of different responses, but you're all saying the same thing, tired, right? He is hungry. His strength fails. If he drinks no water, he gets faint. Because they're just men. You're relying on these men to make your God, and they work all day long on it, and then they're exhausted. You know who never gets exhausted? The God who made everything. So you're relying on a man to make your God. So the very best it can be, you have to find the very strongest person out there. And the best it would be is just the best it could be from the strongest man. That's it. That's your glass ceiling. You can't break through. Verse 13. Meanwhile, the carpenter stretches out his rule ruler. He marks it out with a line, he fits it with planes, and he marks it out with a compass, and he makes it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it, remain, that it may remain in the house. How precisely crafted is this idol that men fall down and worship? It is only, it could only ever be, as precise as the sharpest, smartest, most smooth-handed craftsman or carpenter could make it. The very best it could be is the best a man could be. That's it. That's your glass ceiling. Verse 14, he hews him down cedars. He takes the cypress and the oak, which he strengthens for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants an ash and the rain does nourish it. How big is your idol? How big is this thing that you're going to worship? It can only be as big as the mightiest feller can fell. That's it. And still he has to depend on God to bring the rain to make the tree grow. And think about that. This guy wants to have the biggest idol ever. So he needs the rain to make the tree grow to be really big. He's got to rely on the God to make his idol as big as he wants it. You don't think God gets a little annoyed when he sees that happen? 15. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindles it, he bakes bread on the fire, he makes a God, and he worships it. He makes a graven image, and he falls down there too. Can man water the tree? Can man create the water to make the tree grow big? No. What can man do? Man can cut down the tree. Can man nourish the tree with all the nutrients that it needs to grow big and strong, to be felled, and to be cut and shaped and molded into a god? No. What can man do? He can burn the tree. Man is very good at destroying things. It's really easy to knock down a castle. It's really easy to destroy something. Building one is not so easy. It's really easy to cut down a tree, relatively speaking, to cut down a tree. Make a tree. Well, I can make a tree. I'll take an acorn here. I'll get the seed. Ah, make an acorn. Well, I'll go to the acorn tree. Ah, make an acorn tree. Make a tree. Then you have my attention. Verse 16. He burns part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eats flesh meat. He roasts roast. And is satisfied. He warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. <coughs> and the residue thereof, with that he makes a god, even his graven image. He falls down unto it and he worships it. And he prays unto it 
And what does he say? What's the quote at the end of verse 17? What's your Bible say? Deliver me. What deliver me? Why? For you are my God. For you are my God. Is that what your Bible says? Rescue me. Deliver me. That's there's a little bit of panic in that tone. This is not just, hey, it rained yesterday. I think I'll worship the rain god. This is I need rescuing. Deliver me. For you are my God. So here's a guy who cuts down a tree. <laughs> Makes himself some food from the fire that he burns from the wood that he cut down. With the fire left over, he molds himself a god. And he props it up. He was there every step of its creation process. Except for the parts where no man can create. He didn't make the tree, but he cut down the tree. And from there, he started a process that ends with an idol. And he has the audacity to look at this thing that he made and say, save me. This thing that he created and say, you are my god. If that thing could talk... It will be saying, you are my God. Because it says, you made me. You cut me down. You shaped me. You molded me. You gave me a name. You gave me a place of honor. You're my God. Save me. And this fool looks at it with its blank stare. And it says, save me. Watch me. All right? Every step of the way. Watch me. Save me, save me! He can't save me. He's dead. He died in 1977. We assume. Save me, save me, save me! If I had drawn, if, if, a, if a, a man broke in here with a gun and a ski mask intending to burgle every one of us, and I quickly drew a police officer, what could it do? Hmm? What could it do except freak out the guy who came to burgle me? What could it actually do? That's what God sees. He watches this guy cut down his beautiful tree. He watched this guy uh, chop it into pieces, burn it, melt his gold that he put in those mountains, form it into the idol shape of a teddy bear or a dog or a duck or whatever, a man, and then say to it, save me. He's thinking, am I a joke to you? <clears throat> Verse 18. They, those kind of people. Notice he never says you people, <laughs> though it is these people. The whole reason Isaiah is writing this letter is because they're the idolaters. But God is being kind. And so he's not talking around it. He's leading them to say, I can't believe we almost elected the penguin mayor. He's leading them to the conclusion. They, those people who do that, have not known or understood. Because he has shut their eyes. Who has? God has shut their eyes. The same way he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he shut their eyes. How? In what way is God shutting their eyes? Does he not want them to, wor to worship him? Does he not want them... Does he want them worshiping idols? No, no, no. He's not making their eyes go close, like physically closing their eyes or even metaphorically forcing their eyes close. What God is doing is just being God. And he is not limiting himself. He's not lowering himself. He's not stooping to a lower level to, to convince these idolaters with additional reasons why they should worship him. He's given them plenty of reason why not to worship a, a thing. He's given them every reason to worship the Creator. He's not going to stoop down anymore, lower himself, and I mean that not in a humble way, I mean lower himself in a debasing, degrading way, to convince some idolater who wants to worship an idol, please, please worship me instead. He's not going to do that. He's going to be stubbornly, defiantly, truly God. And if that causes that idolater to say, well, have you ever heard somebody say, 
And I have these exact words. Well, if God doesn't directly tell me right now that he's doing this or he's not doing that, that I'm not going to believe in him, God is never going to tell you jack or squat if that's what you want. It is not God's job, it is not God's prerogative to send a giant brass trumpet from heaven and say, Hey, I'm right here, okay? No, he has given to you, hey, I'm right here, okay. If this isn't good enough for you, this is all you get. This is your one chance fancy. This is it. And if that's not good enough for you and you want to stubbornly be in defiance of this, then your heart will get hard and God will sit there and watch it happen. And he will continue not giving you what you want because it's not good enough what he has given you. Thus, God will harden your heart. God will shut your eyes. 19. And none of these idolatrous fools are thinking within themselves. Neither is there any knowledge nor understanding to say, quote, I have burned part of this in the fire. I have baked bread and coals on it. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the residue of an abomination? They, they, none of them consider how stupid it is to go from that to that. And to say, okay, I'm going to cut down this wood. Fine, people do that. I'm going to make a fire. Makes sense. It's dead wood. I'm going to cook meat on it. That's what you're supposed to do. And then after I cook the meat, I'm going to make a god. Whoa! What? Why? Where's the leap from I'm going to make dinner to I'm going to make abomination? There's no jump there. Somebody has to have along the way conned you, lied to you with a silver slippery tongue to get from I'm going to use this fire for food so I'm going to use this fire to mold a brass teddy bear that I will think can save me. To get from there to there required a deception. The devil didn't deceive people to use fire to make bread. He did deceive people to use it to make gods. And they never stopped to think how silly this is what they're doing, is the point of verse 19. He feeds on ashes, 20. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot, that he cannot deliver his soul. Nor will he ever say, quote, if, let's pretend this is an idol. There is a lie in my hand. Foolishly, I said to myself, save me, you're a god. Stupid, that was to say. He'll never say that. Why? Because he's in too deep. He doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. He can't convince himself otherwise. He doesn't want to be convinced. Whatever it is, he's in too deep. And he'll never say to himself, well, I shouldn't have done that. 21. Remember everything that I've said to you, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. That idol that is made by that person, that idol is the servant. The person just doesn't know that. But you are my servant. I made you. That's what he says. I formed you. Who formed the idol? The man. Who formed the man? God. You are my servant, Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. A good reminder every now and then as they're making their way into Babylon. 22. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. It's a hot July day. The sun is beaming. There's not a cloud in the sky. You're sweating. You're sweltering. Your skin is burning. And then as if from nowhere, a rain cloud. It doesn't just appear in the horizon, off in the distance, coming maybe tomorrow, but yet it just appears, and then it just moves right across that sun, and your eyes adjust, and it gets nice and dark in a pleasant kind of way, and you feel some coolness for the first time, and you think, oh, that's nice. God says, I'm going to do that with your sins, because your sins disgust me. Your sins make my skin crawl. 
Your sins are nasty and I hate them and I don't want them, have any, anything to do with them anymore. So I'm just going to just cover them up. Put a big dark cloud over them. Block them out. Your sins. And as a result of that, the appeal. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 23. Well, now we're redeemed. What do we do when we're redeemed? We sing. Sweet is the song. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, a forest, every tree therein. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He has glorified himself in Israel. From the mountains to the forest, to the valleys, to the streams, to every part of the earth that is all made by him, they will all be singing the same song. The Redeemer has come. The Redeemer is here. We are all going to be okay. 24. For thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he that formed you from the womb, he says this, quote, I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. He doesn't need help. He's doing all this and he's doing it just fine. Here's what I say. Who does all these things? I also frustrate the tokens of the liars. I make diviners mad, crazy, that turn wise men backwards and make their knowledge foolish. Now he contrasts himself, not with idols, but with the pagan priests who facilitate the false worship of these idols. The diviners, the enchanters, the prognosticators who stand in courts of kings and say, I saw the stars predict this great thing is going to happen. And it's always good news lest they be killed. It's always coincidentally good news until something terrible happens and then they're all out of a job anyway, so it doesn't matter. So they all predict and they all prognosticate and they all say, the stars say this wonderful thing is going to happen. The, the moon predicts this great thing is going to happen. And God says, I, if you recall this a few chapters ago, I can take the sun and move it backwards. I made the moon. I gave it the lights. I created all these things. I can take the, all the stars in the sky and I can go with them. And I can change all your predictions. You can't even make a star. And you're coming at me with prognostications. I frustrate the King James says tokens, but it means signs. I frustrate the signs of the liars, those pagans who look to try to divine and understand from them. I make those diviners crazy. I drive them mad. Why? Because I take their stars and I take their planets and everything and I can move them all around if I wanted to. So they couldn't prognosticate from them. Turn the wise men backward. Make them frustrated, disappointed. It makes their knowledge foolish. Makes them look like fools, if nothing else. 26. Still speaking of himself. That confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Previous chapter, I'm going to blow you all up. Next chapter, I'm going to build you all up. He's going to do both. It's going to hurt. It's going to be great. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to feel like God abandoned us. Oh, look, the Messiah is here. That's Isaiah. Boom, boom, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> I've confirmed the word that I promised you. I'm going to do what I said I would do. Perform the counsel of his messengers. All my prophets that have come to predict, their word's going to come to pass. I say to Jerusalem, you'll be inhabited again. Because you're going to be disinhabited in a little while. You're going to go into captivity. I'm going to build you up after I've torn you down. I who say to the deep, verse 27, be dry. And I dry up the rivers. Can an idol do that? Can a man do that? Can anything? You can even imagine. See, here's the amazing thing about God. Imagine a being powerful enough to say to a river, don't be a river anymore. And you've imagined God. That's it. 
You can't imagine some other God. It's just you imagine God. Imagine a being who can do anything, who has been everywhere, who can know everything, who can say anything, who can go anywhere, who can accomplish anything, who can predict everything. You've imagined God. It's not an imagination. It's just, that's who you are imagining. God. Only He could do that. Verse 28. I am He who will redeem you. I who can do all these things. I. And then He just tosses out like it's nothing. He says, I who say to or say about whom? Cyrus. Cyrus. This guy's my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. He will say to Jerusalem, be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. The temple, still standing when Isaiah writes this. Jerusalem, doing okay. Not soon, but right now, fine. Cyrus, not even a twinkle in his granddaddy's eye. For 150 years, give or take, before the man ever draws his first breath, as a baby, and yet God not only makes a vague allusion to him and to what he will do, he mentions the cat by name, and his name's not Bill or John or something common. His name is Cyrus, which is not common. And God calls him by name. It, written in a tongue that he did not speak to a people and to a land that he would not visit in his, in his before he became an emperor time. Uh, to a people who would have no reason to think anything of his name being there. Didn't have to mention his name. Could have just said that says to his servant, you're my shepherd. It would have been just as fine. If that had been how it's written, we would have all just blown right past it. We still would have known he was talking about Cyrus. We would have, we would have all made the connection as we do with all the other references about him that we've already gotten. But he goes out of his way to drop the dude's name. And it is such a remarkably profound and powerful prediction that a, not ironically do I say, frustrated, con man, so-called critic of the Bible, is forced to conclude, like those same prognosticators that he frustrates, this has frustrated them, and they're forced to conclude, well, it must, must have been written later. There must have been two Isaiahs, or four Isaiahs, or this was written after the fact. The Jews wouldn't have put it in their canon if some guy just showed up one day and said, I've got another half of Isaiah. And they wouldn't have taken a totally different book that was written after the fact that tried to pass itself off as prophecy. They wouldn't have taken that book. I, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, but I want to say it again. If someone just shows up and says, I've written this book, I just wrote it, that predicted the rise of Ronald Reagan in the 80s. You're going to be looking at me and saying, well, you wrote the World Book Encyclopedia from 1989. That's not new, that's old. And, if some, and so no one's going to accept it. If some guy shows up and says, I've written this prophetic book, but I actually wrote it 30, well, when was the 80s? A long time ago. I actually wrote it 50 years ago about the rise of Ronald Reagan in the 80s. You haven't seen it until now, 2023. But I wrote it about Reagan, but I wrote it like in the 60s or something about his rise in the 80s. You're going to look at me and you're going to say, no, you didn't. You wrote that last Tuesday, and you're trying to pass yourself off as a prophet. And no one's going to believe you because you just showed up one day with a book that you said was written a long time ago when everyone knows it wasn't. The only way a prophet gets to be a prophet is if you're writing in the 60s and it comes to pass in the 80s. And everyone had 20 years of analyzing it, scrutinizing it, and wondering what it meant until it actually happened. Then they could go back and say, oh, oh, we shouldn't have killed that guy. And that's what happened over and over with God's prophets. 
Because they never just showed up one day with a book and said, that's stuff that already happened. I actually wrote about it a long time ago. You can take my word for it. No, they said stuff's going to happen. And unlike all the lying prognosticators who sat in king's courts and lied, these guys had the audacity and the temerity to say, and it's bad news. You're all going to suffer. You're all going to die. You all need to change your ways because I'm predicting now what will happen. And they said, you can't tell us what to do. Kill him. And so they killed him. And then 30, 40, 50, 100 years later, they looked back and said, oh, we shouldn't have killed him. He was telling the truth. And that's how they say, well, this is obviously inspired. <coughs> they put that in the canon. And that's what they did with Isaiah. Isaiah, not Isaiah's, Isaiah. One book, among which mentions Cyrus. Stupid, ludicrous to try to argue two Isaiahs. But people do it with a straight face, and they'll sell tickets for it. And people will pay out the wine, the, the zoo, to buy the tickets, to sit in the college courses, to get their stupid A's, because they want to agree with it. God calls Cyrus his shepherd. Remember, he has three servants in the second half of the book. He's got Judah, his servant that betrays him. He's got Cyrus, his servant that will politically redeem them, save them, bring them home. And he's got Christ, the Messiah to come, who will spiritually save them and bring them home. This one is the second one. Cyrus is spiritual, his physical shepherd. He's coming. What does he say about him? He will build the temple. He will build Jerusalem at a time when the, the idea, the notion that the temple would be destroyed, unfathomable. But he's already talking about it being rebuilt. End of chapter. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive, giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's you know it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.